From Severn Films, coming to 4K UHD, Alejandro Jodorowsky's shocking masterpiece, Santa Sangre. Forget everything you've ever seen, as this extraordinary collision between Freud and Fellini gets a massive four-disc release with over eight hours of special features, soundtrack CD, and new 4K scan from Santa Sangre's original negative, supervised by Jodorowsky himself. Plus, nature is revolting at Severn Films, with new Blu-ray special edition of William Girdler's Grizzly and Day of the Animals, plus the worldwide Blu-ray debut of Joe D'Amato foray into shark exploitation deep blood um santa sangre 4k grizzly day of the animals and deep blood available for pre-order now at severin-films.com multiple bundle options available with exclusive merchandise tonight's episode is also brought to you by fright rags fright rags has been bringing you the best in horror apparel and accessories since 2003 offering a wide range of products from your favorite creature features slasher flicks and cult classics collections include john carpenter's halloween universal monsters night of the living dead creep show twin peaks evil dead and so many more Coming Wednesday, January 13th, Fright Rags will be unleashing their first collection for Showtime's top-rated series, Dexter, featuring five brand-new shirts and an exclusive snapback hat, all officially licensed and available now at fright-rags.com. Colors of the Dark listeners can get 10% off when they use the code COD10 at checkout. Again, that code is COD10 for 10% off at fright-rags. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive and carefully curated content, honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code COLORS to save 25% off your yearly subscription. And welcome to Colors of the Dark. It is our first show back in 2021, and it has been a freaking hell of a day. I'm your co-host, Rebecca McKendry, and with me is Elric Kane. Elric, how are you doing? I am trying not to spontaneously combust, but it is very difficult on a day like this. Yes, it is. But we do have um, a very spontaneous director coming up to uh, chat with us in just a bit. Yes, yeah, I mean, we've been underwater all day. It's been a t- tricky, tricky day, um, but there's insurgents happening. Okay, I'm done. I feel I'm like I'm link permanently any- a babysitter and there's yeah, yeah. love and monster. I, I got nothing yeah. here. Giant crabs, crabs. Crabs, crabs. He was uh, anyway. sweet. Uh, we are very, very lucky that our uh, somebody who had two films in our top 10 uh, of our last episode is going to be joining us for a fun interview just to talk about their work as a writer in Hollywood. And that's that was a real, uh, really fun thing to kind of be able to pull off right at the top of the year. Um, so that'll first, be coming up in just a bit. But first, everything first, we have watched. Well, we, so we ended last year, um, yes. <laughs> Hellfire Year. Today's still Hellfire Day, don't get me wrong. But Hellfire Year we put behind us with a screening of, I, I, you know, pretty classy high concept movie cruel yeah, jaws. really original cruel yeah. jaws cool um 
this is this is um, very ironic in everything that we're saying. That technically is not ir- irony, but yeah, it's um, so cruel jaws. This is from 1995 by Bruno Mattai, and this one had was kind of a, a very notorious film because it was one that supposedly could never get released here in the states because it was copy. It was using really cotton copywritten material, not just like stealing the plot from Jaws, like taking actual footage from other movies. And the soundtrack from Star Wars and um, That's amazing. a bunch yeah. of other things. Well, we screened um, it live, right? So we did a live screening with USC and Fangoria. And that was one of the things that came up in the chat a lot was the Star Wars music, I think, was the part that most kind of blew people away. Yeah, it was very much like the Imperial Army was like yeah. heading out of the gates. Um, but in this, it was a regatta. They chose to use it for a very kind of 80s style regatta with sharks um this movie i had a blast with it i mean it's it's just so one of those movies where you're like i do not know how this can exist in this world um but thank god for david gregory and the folks at severin for making sure that it continues to exist and we all get to see it so i recommend cruel jaws um just for it's it's just a, a wild little film but we are doing another screening because we've had such a good time doing them. During uh, December, we did Cruel Jaws and we did Burial Ground, um, which is another movie that I don't know how the fuck it exists, but it's just an amazing little fever dream of madness. Um, but for the next one, we're actually going to do a good movie. And I mean that I mean that in total respect to Cruel Jaws and Burial Ground, but this is like a classy film. So on January 29th, we will be screening Bird with the Crystal Plumage, um, through USC. This will be an online screening. Afterwards, there'll be a chat. You can ask questions. We can talk about it. Um, so we'll be posting the link to reserve your spot at the screening on our socials, um, probably by the time this episode is up, if not within a couple of days of it. And yeah, please join us for a bird with the crystal plumage for Giallo January. Giallo January, which our next episode will focus a little bit, we'll do a little bit deeper. I've got a couple Giallos we'll throw in today, but mostly we're going to talk about it on our second episode of January at, uh, tying directly in. And I am a big, I think Bird with the Crystal Plumage is actually one of his best films. It's actually, it might be his best script. It's mm-hmm. really, it's got actual humor. It's got a real mystery at the heart of it. Um, and, and everything else that became what we know as Argento is still great in it. So I'm excited. I think we decided we're going to go with the Italian version. We were going back and forth because I was worried that people can't type and ask questions while they go. They're also reading, but, but you know, I think we're going to stay true to the original and it, it'll be fun. And uh, you as a listener to the show can attend this thing free. If you register, you can ask questions at the end. You can kind of be part of the show and it's kind of, it's a cool change for us. Um, but yeah, let's get into some of the stuff. Cause I saw, yeah, I think we had a couple of horror comedies, obviously on point for this topic today, uh, yeah. up top, but a big one was, uh, that I, t- I knew you would like when I saw it. Um, I saw it late. I think I just finished my top 10 list when I saw it. It might've snuck onto the end or just been off for me. And that is scare me, uh, yeah. for Netflix. So this is one that I admittedly had not rush to see because I'd seen some negative reviews about it. I'd seen it. It seemed to be very polarizing because I know I had students who saw it that were like, oh, this is great. Um, but then I saw a lot of other people that were like, I don't really know what to make of this movie. And I get that. I get that. I don't really know what to make of this movie. Um, I can say the entire movie is structured, uh, and this is the theater dork in me coming out. The entire movie is structured around an improvisational theater game that they somehow make work for an hour and a half and it's brilliant. The idea that you're having to work out as some act act as someone else is telling a story. And it's brilliant the way that they do it in this. Um, So I 
love this movie, completely fell in love with it. Um, but I do have to say, I, it felt like it was a movie for theater nerds. And yeah, it's, it's, love it. but also I think it's maybe theater nerds. I think it's more for maybe writers more than anyone. I think it's a it's very much, you know, it's, it's about performance, but it's about like telling a story. And I think mm-hmm. that gets forgotten a lot. A lot of people talk about like, you'll ask them, what's your movie about? And we mean, you do a lot of teaching, right? And people start talking about the aesthetics or a, the way it looks or the cinematography. And you'll be like, no, 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 no. What is the story? Like, yep. what are you going to tell me has happened? And this is what the challenge is. You have one guy, Josh Rubin, who wrote, uh, wrote, directed and stars in this. And that's the, one of the impressive things is the performances by him and uh, Ava Cash are just terrific. They're really mm-hmm. funny. And she's a he's a wannabe writer who's going away to his kind of secluded cabin for a weekend to write in quote marks, even though he probably has never written anything. Yeah, and it felt she, like they were in Idlewild. Like, I yeah, kept looking at like everything that. going, oh, you're in Idlewild. I get it. Okay. And she's an actual best-selling author who happens to be there. And there's a bit of that misogyny that creeps in where she's successful and he isn't, but he deserves it in his mind. So you see that thing. But it's also, to me, it was hitting on saying we all who live here, who have any aspirations in the industry have, there's a competitive thing that even if you didn't want to, or even with your friends that just, it, you can't help but stir inside you. And it's yeah. a negative thing. It's an ugly thing. And in this, it's really, this is what it's all about. And she's kind of pushing him to tell better stories. And it's interesting. And they tell each other stories. And there's a couple other characters who enter the story, but really it's them secluded after the power goes out overnight. And it's scare me. Give me a story that's actually scary. And she, she kicks his ass a bit mm-hmm. with a pretty stupid story that he's got and pushes it. And I, for me, it falls, falls away a little bit by the end, it becomes a little bit generic in terms of the horror comedy, but. I liked the twist that it took in the third act, how it actually did go from just storytelling to actually getting scary. Yeah, no, I like that too. I think it's just after that for me. But but again, I still really like it. I think it's a really cool movie. And I think, I know at at Sundance, it made quite the splash and people were talking about it. And then I feel like once it went to Netflix, people stopped talking about it. So It's on Shudder. Oh, isn't it on Netflix? Okay, you might be right. Is it on Netflix? No, you might be right. No, you might be right. But whatever it was, I felt like once it got there, I didn't, you know, I stopped hearing about it. And I do think a lot of people will dig it. So, so that was a fun one. I I knew as soon as I watched it, I was like, I'm pretty sure you're going to love it. Yeah, it's a total me movie. And you're right. It is very much like a writer's movie because it's very much like them acting it out. And she's like, he's a chiropractor from Denver. And then he's like, "Mm -mm, that doesn't, okay, fine. She's a stewardess from Dubuque. Yeah. So it's just these like. Those who co-write will know even quicker. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely a writer's movie. Um, I saw another one I I loved. Um, I probably liked it even more than this one. Um, it was again from John Waters' top ten of the year. So he gave us <laughs> Butt Boy. Where would we be without John Waters? Uh, Butt Boy and I Swallow. Can't believe after Butt Boy, you are continuing I know. with it. No, John Waters, I believe in. I'm, I'm drinking out of my John, my best Christmas present from somebody who who knows me. Uh, yes. As a quote. Uh, John Waters, without obsession, life is nothing. John Waters, my favorite Christmas present, which I'm drinking whiskey every episode I do now. Uh, I'm glad that quote reminds me of you and how we both throughout our lives have gotten flack for being so obsessed with yes. movies. Um, but we and both consider movies. it to be what defines us. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's what, it, why, that's why we're sitting here. Um, and so he, every year he does his top 10 for art forum, um, which is, you know, a high end art magazine. And I've always found it amusing that they have these very high end film critics like Amy Talbot and stuff in there. But then John Waters always has one. His list is always great, even if I don't love every movie. Uh, he put this one, a Russian 
kind of black comedy called Why Don't You Just Die by a guy, first featured by a guy, Kirill Sokolov. Um, and, you know, I didn't watch it for the longest time and, and it wasn't until the new year. I think it was the first film of the year, actually, I watched. Uh, it was like really late at night on the 30, on New Year's Eve, I think. Um, you know, and, you know, kind of depressing New Year's, like, right? We're all stuck at home and, you know, not doing it. Oh my God, I debated going to bed early because I was uh, like, this is where yeah. I'm like, why? Why bother? I know, I know. But this one put me in a really good mood. It's kind of like all those movies that came about right after Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction were popular that really were 99% trash. And it was like, became the film school trope. Everyone draws guns that kind of shit and then it that style of filmmaking lasted a few years and just disappeared completely mm-hmm. and i'm not gonna say i missed it but the way he brings some of that back that's got an element of that it's got an element i'd say of cheap thrills in terms of tone and you know i love cheap thrills yeah uh, so it's black 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 comedy with really violent moments of blood but then it's funny and um really well directed so it's basically this guy just opens with this young guy 20 year old guy with a hammer showing up to a house, ringing the doorbell. You don't know why he's there. He's really nervous. And there's a bold, you know, middle-aged man answering the door who turns out to be a cop. And then it flashes back and to the guy's girlfriend as she says, just want you to know that my father molested me when I was young and I really would love you to do something about it. So he is there with this real high stakes kind of really serious thing. And trust me, it gets lighter as the movie goes. Uh, A lot of things, a lot of truths keep getting turned on their head throughout this movie and everyone's motivation ends up being questionable. Um, And he gets in there and instantly the, the dad just keeps looking at the hammer and him and trying to figure out what's going on. And once the violence starts, it starts like 10 minutes in. It is just unrelenting and it's all funny and it's pretty, it keeps escalating one beat over the next. It's that kind of movie. Um, and I just think it's a blast. And it's only like 99 cents on Amazon. So it was actually a very cheap rental right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to say too much more because it's very simple. And some of the twists by the end uh, in that early Tarantino way are very i don't know they feel fresh in this in this light in a russian interpretation and and it's funny it's actually funny i thought so this is why don't you just die it's not one i would have even have heard of if not for john waters top 10 so uh i have there's a copy i have the blu-ray of it that's been sitting on my to watch shelf for months now that i think was put out by arrow Could have been. Um, I don't know. yeah i there there is definitely a nice blu-ray release of it as well it's fine it's like it's horror in the sense of like cheap thrills like it's a black comedy violent movie but i just thought it was a really fun way to kind of kick off the year and uh super kind of almost ridiculous but and there's lots of blood a lot of the letterbox reviews would be like well that's a lot of blood like things that shouldn't pr- pr- <laughs> have that much blood coming out of you uh after an injury just blood keeps gushing and i always think that's amusing so oh my gosh well um let's see i kicked off the year the first thing that i watched was probably the call which was one that everybody kept telling me that i should have watched to put on my top 10 list i don't think it would have made my top 10 list but at the same time it was definitely an interesting movie this is um the call on netflix this is a south korean film about a girl who um, moves into a house. She finds a phone and immediately realizes that she's talking with somebody who lived there 20 years prior who was murdered. And so she starts trying to prevent the murder before it happens and figuring out who the serial killer may be. And honestly, that's not an original plot. I've seen a lot of movies do that. There was um, a Puerto Rican film from probably a decade ago called The Caller that was a very similar setup. But what this does do is it has a lot of very South Korean twists throughout and the ending is really fucking ambiguous. And that has been the most fun is um, just seeing people online trying to figure out what happened at the end. 
Um, it's it's got a pretty impressive. that's a Netflix one, right? Mm-hmm. And this it's definitely been one of the Netflix ones where for like a couple of days everybody's talking about how amazing it is. Actually, I remember seeing a list pop up that was like, if you like the call, here's ten more films you'll like. And so it's very much kind of that supernatural thriller, the things that have really great tension. This does have really good tension and does have some fun twists throughout. Would not have made my top ten list by any stretch, but I definitely see why people have been so excited about it. Hmm. I saw another foreign one. I won't go too deep into this one, but because the last one I was Russian, somebody in our one of our groups uh, mentioned another Russian slow burn kind of stylish horror called Quiet Comes the Dawn, uh, mm-hmm. also on uh, Amazon. And I will say this: if there was somebody who was going to direct a sequel to It Follows, if it wasn't the director, the the aesthetics of this movie felt quite a lot like that, kind of like a waking nightmare, but. It totally falls apart in the third act, like like off a cliff to me in the last act where you're like, ah, it's such a good buildup. It's basically a, a young girl. You see a crazy flashback where something terrible happens to her mom, uh, cuts, to the, cuts to the present where the young girl is having a birthday party at 18. Her brother comes to visit. And then at the end of this party, he looks like he's like sleepwalking, but he jumps out the window and dies. And she's like she's suffering from these weird nightmares. She goes to this clinic for lucid dreaming and mm-hmm. all these people like five of them get put under this lucid dreaming. And then when they wake up, no one's in this giant Cronenbergian Institute and they're all walking around these empty halls. And it's got that really dreamy Ooh. to the point where it makes you a little tired. Cause it's so dreamy. Um, and, and somebody is then like knocking some of them off. So you think, and you don't really know. It's one of those movies that maybe there's like two or three movies competing for what the story could have been. But as a style, if you're into stylish horror movies, I do think it might be worth your time. It was like, I ended up giving it like two and a half stars, but it could have been, three and a half if it had just kind of stuck the landing but i thought i'd mention it because i mentioned the other russian one and it is free right now on amazon if you have prime you'll get to watch it for free um and it had some pretty cool imagery so that's quiet comes the dawn so i'll i'll do two back to back because one yeah. of them's really quick um so we had talked about when we did our horror noir you had mentioned a film called the devil's hand from 1961 that I had never seen before. And I think it was on Prime. I may have paid like 99 cents to rent it. But as soon as I saw it on Prime, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to check this out. It was actually really fun and watchable. Um, It was definitely kind of a detective thing but still had this really strong satanic vibe that made it fun. But also, um, I will warn in advance, it had some very kind of 1960s style, low budget voodoo racism going on in there as well. So do approach with costume. Yeah, it's a satanic way. ritual, isn't it? Like, uh, Yeah, but there's a lot, they bring in voodoo in the very unclassy way. And so there were a couple scenes that I will say were pretty damn cringy, but... It, still, there was there was something that I was kind of like, this is it felt like a cinematic gem that somehow had been passed over. Yeah, it feels so a little that, in the Val Luton world, like a little bit. Not quite it, as yeah. classy, but not yeah. as classy, no, no, but, but yeah, yeah, definitely it felt Val Luton. But what's interesting is it, it felt very 1940s, but this is 1961. Mm. Like that is where it felt weird. It's like, okay, by this time we know better. And it still it had this very kind of 1940s persona to it the entire way through. Um, this guy who is engaged to this one beautiful woman starts having visions of this other beautiful woman and they take him to a doll shop and he walks in and the proprietor of the doll shop is like, oh, good to see you again. I made this doll that you ordered. And he's like, no, I've never been here before. And then from there, it just kind of spirals and he ends up in a satanic cult with Mm -hmm. voodoo connections. 
But yeah, so that one- The blonde, the hot one that he wants, Linda Christian, she's the first woman. I've told you parts of this before. She was married to Tyrone Power from Nightmare Alley. Mm -hmm. And she was one of the first, when I moved to LA, one of the first things we did is ended up at her house in the um, Palm Springs when she was not doing so well. You know, she's like a family friend. And so I got to meet her in her latter years. And so it's fat. And that's how I found out about that movie. She told me about a horror film she'd been in. So I thought that's kind of cool. Yeah. So there's a weird personal connection to that one, which is kind of funny. That that is um I'm I'm sorry to hear that but that is a very cool personal she's, yeah she, no, she was a character yeah um so then this takes me to what has definitely been the highlight of my six days of uh, 2021 so far and that is 30 coins on HBO Max so I had heard about this back at the end of December and immediately was like holy shit somebody gave Alex D'Iglesia an entire show. Alex D'Iglesia, I will watch anything he makes, but I love him at his most bonkers. Like when he, when the reins are off, like his first film, Action Mutante, I, and it is, it is so wrong across the board. Oh, yeah. I remember discovering that in Day of the Beast, like pretty soon yeah. after Day of the Beast came out was when I would have seen those. And I love them both, but I haven't seen all of them. I know you've been keeping up with almost everything he's made. Everything he does. And yeah. I mean, I even like his weird Hollywood one. He's got this, I can't even remember the name now. It's got Elijah Wood in it. And oh. it's like this math serial killer. Oh, with yes. Like Ian McKellen or something. Yeah. I and they're John Hurt or somebody. It, yeah. Oxford like Murders, I think. Murders, yeah. I even like that one. I, mean, I never saw uh, it. Yeah, yeah it, he's definitely Elijah Woods kind of like despondent and doesn't have much personality in it. Yeah. But aside from that, it's it's a very watchable movie. But, I've also, just so the audience at home knows and holds you accountable, I challenged Becca late last night to get Alex Iglesias on our show at some point. Neither of us know if he actually speaks English at all. So we'll uh, see if he retweeted me. Oh, that's what I'm saying. You've got a chance. He tweeted me. So, so we've got a chance yeah. to get him. I don't, we don't know if he can speak English, but whatever. So David Gregory, you can expect an email because I yes. know David is uh, releasing Perdita Durango. So I'm and, just- and Day of the Beast is getting a re-release. I'm f- oh, so I'm just going to assume that somewhere in there, somebody had a conversation with him. So we're going to yes. try to get him on. Yes. Um, if any of our listeners, you know, just happen to like be chummy, play racquetball with him or in whatnot. Spain, racquetball in Spain. I don't know. I'm trying to chummy. No one's yeah, doing okay. anything. It's the pandemic yeah. if you just happen tweet at him and okay. tell him he needs to come on the show i would love to talk to him just because he is one filmmaker whose career i've been obsessed with since i was in college i remember you love him um, witching and bitching witching and bitching um, baby's the room you circus, like the baby's yeah. room like just literally. i still haven't seen that i gotta see that one that's one you always recommended i got it's one it. of his more straightforward it's literally like he's channeling m night Shyamalan, but then it gets really bonkers in the third act and it's just really good scares and setups the entire way through but anyway so somebody um one of our listeners who knew i was like obsessed with him had sent me a letter on Twitter, uh, like right at the end of the year that was like, do you know that they had, he has a big, big show coming to HBO max. And I almost didn't believe it. I was like, no way they gave him a full show that, you know, they, they always keep him, you know, he does weird little bonkers shit. Cause whatever it is, he's going to get fucking crazy in it. And, um, sure enough, it released yesterday or two days ago. And they put up two episodes. I only got to watch the first one, sadly, but it is an hour and a half of beautiful religious horror imagery, monster mayhem, and shot gorgeous. 
Um, and the just- opening credits tell you it's kind of cool because the opening credits oh. show you the the whole story, just the biblical. You have the person who betrays Christ as Christ is dying, getting paid a bunch of coins from the Romans, and then he feels bad about it because of the way kind of Christ looks down at him, and then he hangs himself, and the coins get scattered. And so without even having to ta- – it hasn't even come up in the show, but you can basically assume that somebody is trying to get all the coins back, and the coins seem to be cursed in yeah. some way from the devil itself. And so, yeah, in this t- it's a small town in Spain, and you've got a, a preacher who's just – come to town uh who's an it turns out to be an exorcist who has a bloody past you have a town mayor trying to hold the town together you have this other girl it's just really fun the characters are very entertaining mm-hmm. and then it goes full freaking extra when it comes to the creature like it's oh like it's really delivers up, i was like yeah. oh god they have seen extra it was like it was like he was winking at it it was super um, cool no it delivers and the second one i, I won't go into I was, I was getting really tired by the time i watch it it was a bit more like x files like a bit more monster of the day a monster of the week but still in a good way so i'm so i'm definitely excited just to see how how you kind of look at a different coin um it's yeah i think so but it's the same town so okay so yeah it's obviously all going to be set in this one place but so i'm so excited this is a story that i mean this isn't the first time i've heard it the idea of judas's blood money and the coins being cursed and still being circulated around i had heard that pitched a couple of times before. Um, but I am so excited that, you know, that story finally landed with Alex D'Iglesia. Um, because all of his stuff is always so infused with religion. I actually, I texted Alric right as we were watching the opening credits and was like this, this first like 30 second opening credits is the most Alex D'Iglesia thing ever. It's like him synthesized because it is the crucifixion, but it's brutal and somehow comedic and intensely bloody. It's, and there's, they're grimacing at the camera. So it's like this fourth wall thing. It's crazy. The fun Um, thing about it that I, I, that sometimes I hate in modern movies and then with him, I really liked it, which is he's taken this very small town in Spain, which is kind of, you know, seems a little backwards and still very farming based. And yet everyone's on Twitter, everyone's on social media, everyone's talking about their Facebook. And I thought that was actually really fun the way he he did that. And, and people are like, look up the, 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 the history of the minister, the new priest. Everyone's just looking him up on Google straight away. (laughs) I love that they were also concerned about being perceived as rednecks. Rednecks, Um, yeah. That everything that happened, they were like, because the whole thing, and this isn't a spoiler, this happens in the first 10 minutes, a cow gives birth to a human child. And that happens in the first 10 minutes and it sets everything in motion where half the town is like, oh my God, it's the Antichrist. Other people are like, it has to be some type of trick. Who would have done this? That has to be a trick. Who just gave birth? And then other people are like, whatever it is, maybe, you know, we can't kill the kid. You know, we have to figure out the mystery of it. And so that's what sets everything in motion. But the thing that everyone seems to be concerned about is, oh my God, this is, they're going to think we're all like rednecks if this gets out. They're going to think we're just hicks with like our weird human cow babies. Yeah, because it opens with a cow giving what what seems to be a cow giving birth to a normal human baby and then it all kind of goes from there. But yeah, That's it's right. really I'm 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 with you. I'm so glad I watched the start because I'm just it's one of the few series that I I haven't had a lot of time for TV lately because I feel like trying to fit in movies all the time and so this was the first thing that felt so cinematic that I was like, mm-hmm. "Cool, I'm in." Um you know, I'll tell you one. I don't like to give too much airtime to things that aren't for me, but I did watch and I'm just going to put it out there because there was some stuff about, I liked about it, which is The Craft Legacy, which is the new movie from Blumhouse, uh, Zoe Lister-Jones directed. It, it has 
if you like the subtext of the Black Christmas movie, um, the last one, it's the, new Black sim- movie. the new Black Christmas. It's the same as that. In other words, there is none. Like it's not everything is played on the surface. And I know that will have its fans. So I don't want to talk shit about it. It doesn't work for me at all. Those that kind of that kind of writing for me, and just in terms of the kind of story where everything it feels a bit like Twitter or social media kind of conversations. But I have noticed that some young people have actually really taken to these movies and maybe there's something in their world that makes this work a bit better. But what I will say is in, cause this film got a lot of shit, the craft legacy, uh, yeah, it's, you know, but I will say, I don't think it works at all as a craft movie. Um, it, it forgets the group of girls very quickly. There, there's a few scenes of them all together, but for the most part, it like forgets the friends and just focuses on one girl. For me, that's a bummer. But what I will say is like, there are some scenes in it. that are actually pretty interesting and pretty um, well-made and if it was the pilot to a TV version on like the CW, it would totally work. It's, it's more that it's a movie that almost makes it not work as well because it really feels like the setup to a show that you would just watch every week with these girls doing this stuff. And so there has some, but it has also has David Kovney in there and, uh, in a way similarly used as Carrie always was. And a lot of, again, without subtext, some of that stuff can come off to me a little bit on the nose. So it wasn't for me, but I do think, you know, it'll find its, it'll find its base. Um, but I was just curious to see how it compared because I love the original craft. But uh, yeah. I think something we all love about the original craft is how every character gets time. You get to learn about each character and you kind of build the team. This one doesn't really spend enough time on that. Um, but I will end on one that I just loved um, and one of the probably one of the best things I've seen so far in the new year. Um, so we're going to you know be talking about January Jallos as we go occasionally a, a few more next week. And on our deep cuts, we're definitely going to be uh, ma- making sure we touch on one each episode. Um, but this was one that I'm bringing up here because, A, I want you to see it. It had been on my list for years, heard the title, just never bothered. It's on Amazon and HD, so it's perfect time to see it. It's called Perfume of the Lady in Black. I have um, a DVD of this that I yes, have never we, watched. I had it too. We were given it to it from by the Italian company Raro. That's it. I and it never, it. it never made it into my thing. And I'd heard the soundtrack before; it was great. Um, the guy who made it only made a couple uh, giallo, and I've actually I'm going to track down the other one, which is a lot harder to find. Uh, Francesco uh, Barilli. And this one is the reason I'm bringing it up here rather than just on deep cuts is a it's you know you can find it's accessible, but it's also completely unlike. Uh, other giallo the two films i would say it's firmly i could literally uh, condense it to two movies it's repulsion mixed with all the colors of the dark so on one hand there's a uh, oh satanic cult group or some black magic group chasing you down but also you're going through your own kind of repulsion maybe personal breakdown story um and so it, it, it does away with the things we think of as giallo that we'll get into more next week like b- the black gloves the murder mystery none of that's really at the forefront of this one yet it has enough to make it you could still call it a giallo for sure and that's how it was marketed um it's about this woman um young woman sylvia she is uh, uh like a it says industrial scientist. I think she's more like a chemist making perfumes. Um, and she's having these hallucinations of, uh, or, or flashbacks of her, um, mother and her, the, her mother's lover who was really aggressive to her as a little kid. And then her mother's death. And, and then it starts the dreams and nightmares start colliding a bit like shock, um, by Baba. And they start to come together. And then you start to question what's her culpability in all this. And, while that's happening, there's also this group that it seems like everyone's kind of winking at each other in her life. So you start getting paranoid. Are these people all connected? That's where the, all the colors of the dark stuff comes. Um, And it's, and here's the thing. It's got this actress, you know, we all love Edvig Finnick who we'll talk about more when we talk about Jala. This is Mimsy Farmer who there's a movie called road to Selena, which is a place in Spain that I saw for the first time this year, which wasn't really horror, but more like extreme weird cult movie from 
Italy and this actress was in it and I'd never seen her before and I was totally captivated by her. She's the lead in this and she is phenomenal. Like this is now one of, it's almost like one of, seeing one of those actors who's now going to be on your radar every time. She is playing this woman having this kind of breakdown but also being super paranoid about uh, what all these people are going to do to her. So just, you know, I would just recommend this as a very atmospheric, it has also an ending that is a complete showstopper, not at all in line with anything else you've seen in the movie that I, even if I told you now, it wouldn't you would still be shocked by it because it's not what you expect in a movie. It's just pretty fucked up. Um, so oh, I man. highly recommend it. <laughs> I'm in. But yeah, okay. I think you'll really dig it. And maybe if you see it by the time we do our deep cut, you can, uh, yeah, can get your reaction. So that's Perfume of the Lady in Black. And you can find that on Amazon Prime. So the other thing that I did was, oh, do you have any more before we move? Uh, no, not a, yeah, cut? yeah. Uh, well, we'll do, we'll do our interview first with Brian. Yes. Okay. So let's move to Brian. I'm, I'm jumping ahead. We'll That's move okay. to Brian and then we'll move into our deep cut. Yes, and yes. Movie fight. yes. Our deep cut is actually tied to this, the Italian stuff. So it's going to yeah. be kind of fun and saying that you, that actually directly ties to something we've been talking about on, on our other show. But yes, before that, we are going to talk to the uh, writer, director Spontaneous. The, he's the writer underwater. One of our favorites last year, he wrote the, the original babysitter. babysitter. And Love, and, wrote Monsters, Love and Monsters, which I just watched last night and completely fell in love with because it's got a giant crab monster and he's- Yeah, I started a few weeks before and it's also super, it's a super like emotionally, I don't know, it just, it's a nice little love story. The the, it it, the guy you got to root for him, you know? Yeah, um, it, feels, it feels very kind of King Kong-ish where it yeah. is these like giant monsters, but it's very emotional with them. And um, I, I want a boulder snail now. So um, we're going to work on that. But yeah, very lucky to get to go in depth. A nice long interview with Brian, uh, who made, you know, a couple dents on our horror list. So uh, here's the interview with Brian. All right. Uh, joining us, we are very lucky today uh, to get to talk to somebody who had not one, but two films in the top. 10 horror films that we did on our last episode and might have been three if Becca had seen Love of Monsters before we recorded that one. It I probably would have been. Uh, and that is Mr. Brian Duffield. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to have you here because literally you were like the king of my list from last week. <laughs> <laughs> I can account the most fun we had in a movie theater before uh, the lockdown was we went to see Underwater. Underwater. You know, which just was on a big screen was one of our last experiences. I think Invisible Man yeah. was right after. But yeah, we saw Invisible. But we definitely, I remember both of us during Underwater. Um, we were, we were in a packed theater that night, and there were howls. And especially when the the final monster comes out, it was like the whole audience just had this realization, and there was screaming together, just jubilant. I, I was howling at Vincent Cassell, but you know, I, I was just a, a Gasper knowing nerd getting excited to see Vincent Cassell. But um, but obviously, but that's that, that's one uh, our last in theaters, and then like months went by, and I had heard actually some good word on Spontaneous, but. And don't take this the wrong way, but it had uh, the problem that Phantom Thread had, which I love Phantom Thread, but the artwork that was kind of placed up just looked like something I wouldn't watch normally, right? Yeah. So I so I kind of passed it up for a while, and then Becca watched it uh, and just was like, this is the best thing I've seen this year. And then I watch, it's the quickest I've ever watched anything she's ever recommended me. I recommend something, it takes Eric like two months to two years to circle around to it, and yeah. I was so that I think you watched it the next night. Well, it, because it had already been on my list, I just didn't, you know, sometimes you need that little push. And I think that's why both of us took it so seriously to push it because some movies, um, people don't know what it is, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and this is a movie that, and sometimes you'll see movies that come out 
at a time where they feel, you know, prescient, even though they weren't obviously written or created for the time we're in. Uh, you know, She Dies Tomorrow was another one that came out this year that had a similar a feeling for me yeah, sure. a, that it was about something we were going through. So um, what is that like, I guess, as a, as a starting point to have something coming out where clearly it was meant to come out a year or two earlier and suddenly it hits at a time where theaters aren't happening, um, but it is finding an audience in that in a way like a cult movie would. It's weird. It's great too. I mean, it's been really great. Um, like the last, I'd say like, like from Thanksgiving on, like I've noticed like a real uptick in people watching it. Um, like it was great. Like when it came out just cause it was finally coming out. Um, and like the reviews are really warm and that was really lovely. But like, it was also like, I didn't, I could tell like people weren't really engaging with the movie. Um, and then I feel like around like Thanksgiving, like the Twitter started picking up and just in general, just seeing people talk about it um, has kind of had that, you know, kind of like the opposite of like the Netflix effect where you have like that opening drop and then everyone forgets it existed mm-hmm. um, that on the Monday after it comes out. Um, whereas like, I was like, Oh, like people are like kind of passing this movie around, which has been really Cool. And it, you know, because there was no, you know, marketing or anything, you know, it, knowing it's kind of coming out of referrals, it has been really um, special and exciting for me. Yeah. It was done for a while, right? It was, yeah. it was, yeah, it was stupid. Um, like, it was, I mean, I just, we just got stuck in a very bizarre, um, I mean, I filmed it, it, I wrapped February or maybe like the start of March of 2018. Um, and then it was the studio that made the movie sold really shortly thereafter. And we just kind of got stuck in like this very bizarre limbo where for, I think like, I would say like nine months, no one knew who owned us. And then when no one knows who they own you or not, no one really wants to pay Mm -hmm. to make the movie or finish the movie. And so it was just kind of like this very bizarre, it was like the longest post process. Um, like, I think I, I did my final color in January of this year. Um, and so it was like this incredibly long post process, but in terms of like the actual days that I worked on the movie, it was probably, you know, I'll say like, it was like 14 weeks or something. So it was like, it was like 14 weeks, but stretched over, you know, like two years. Um, and just kind of in a back, like I never had, um, I'm trying to think of how much I'm, I should say or not say, but like, I just, I never, had, I never had like notes um, from like the Paramount eventually bought the movie and like, you know, fuck it. Uh, I, I, to this day, like, I don't know if Paramount's ever seen the movie. <laughs> so it's like this weird kind of weird zone where like, I feel like a lot of filmmakers kind of like, are like, Oh, working with the studio was so difficult because they had all these notes. And then I like the opposite um, experience where I was like, please watch my movie that you bought. Um, but then I would <laughs> not hear anything. Um, I think, you know, because Paramount was going through like their CBS merger and just didn't know what to do with us. And, and, you know, COVID, to get back to your, your question, I'm sorry. Um, like COVID definitely colored the movie in a different way because pre-COVID, you know, it was very obvious to, or very obvious and very concerning, I think, to 
um, a lot of the people in town that it was a movie about school shootings because uh, it, it is. Um, and um, COVID has definitely changed that in, in, in a pretty dramatic way that it's now like a very much like a pandemic movie. Um, Which is primarily. incredible how much it colors that stuff because I can honestly say not once did I really think about school shootings because nope. – and I live out in yeah. Solgut where there was one last year where the seniors yeah. you know just down the street from me. And so that was all in my head, but then, but this is erased. Every tragedy or everything we go through yeah. erases the previous one for a while. And you're coloring your film with whatever we're all going through. And, but I think that's what great, great movies about an idea can, can keep changing. Right. You can watch it every 10 years and get a whole different read. Now, this one's yeah. based on a book, right? Yeah, it's based on a book by Aaron Starmer. Um, How did you I, find the book? Or I did. The book. Yeah, I got sent the book pre publishing. Um, so I want to say like 20, I can't, I can't remember if it was like 16 or 17 at this point. Um, um, and then the start of the book is the exact same as the start of the movie. And it's like, you know, you know what you're getting into very quickly. And I was like, very much like, this is what's just happened is very much me. And then also Mara's voice was very much something that I was really into and like kind of her curious reaction to what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much of the movie is, is just ripped out of the book. Um, um, like I think the adaptation is probably a lot more of like an archeological um, reassembling of book things as opposed to like a lot of wholesale things. Um, but, but what they, was yeah, it for it you was, that connected you? Like, like, so if you're going to pick that, because you obviously had a lot of things adapted of your own work, but like to, to choose this to be the thing that you wanted to direct, what was it that was speaking directly to like the things you were excited about in that? Um, I mean, yeah, I think the, 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 in general, the theme of it, of in terms of doing everything right or just doing everything and having no blame and these terrible things happening and how you deal with that idea of how unfair things are that have nothing to do with you or, or no concern of, of yours. I, I was really drawn to, to that for a couple of experiences in my life. I also felt like it was like a subject that I had never really seen a movie kind of confront or deal with like there's movies that deal with loss for sure. But in terms of like a grand, you know, kind of, it doesn't, this thing is going to happen and it's not going to have an explanation and it's just going to be a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. And then what do you kind of do with your life? That felt like a really, um, a powerful thing for me as like a 30 something year old, but then also knowing, you know, because it's like a YA thing. Like if I was 14 or 15, that would have really like hit me between the eyes. Um, so there's the partial that, and then partially, you know, in all honesty, I knew, cause I knew how hard <laughs> it would be. Um, and I'm, um, I'm terrible to myself in terms of like making sure I give myself like the hardest of challenges tone wise. Cause I'm a, I'm a real stickler for tone. And I think I'd been really frustrated when some of my scripts had been adapted and the tone kind of get, gets lost. Um, and, I'm just knowing that there will never be a more difficult tonal type rope to walk than the movie where innocent children are dying every five minutes. Um, and it's a an cute and enjoyable experience. And it's uh, a comedy. Me. Yeah. Um, I felt like a really, you know, there's something about um, 
the tightrope walk of, I may never be allowed near a film set again. If this <laughs> goes, um, poorly, um, but if it goes well, it's, it's, you know, hopefully something that's unique and exciting and, um, unlike anything else, even though it, it definitely, I think intentionally hits the tropes of those kind of John Hughes, YA kind of things. Absolutely. Um, like our, our joke and like, even like the pitch was, it was just like, um, I think even in the lookbook, it was like, it's what would happen if Cronenberg <laughs> murdered John Hughes and then snorted him. That is a much better way to state it's John Hughes mixed with Cronenberg. Anytime you can get it. <laughs> just like, can someone make us that poster for your movie? I want to see that Mondo poster. I know. Right I your damn movie. Mondo poster. Yeah, the poster is a whole... <laughs> No, I, I know that's nothing. I don't make that to be personal because Phantom Thread, you know, I think it's one of the best movies of the last decade. And I remember that poster was just like, it's just two people on a poster. That's it. Yeah, it's, 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 you know, I think, you know, I would love a Mondo poster. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you know, one of the things that in defense of the poster that we have to some extent, like it is a very hard movie to market. Yeah. And I think they, I think they, when we had a very short, Paramount had a, the Paramount marketing team I think they only had like two weeks between getting handed everything and like needing to deliver everything. So it was a very short window and it's a very complicated movie. And there was just a lot of concern about if you market it towards horror fans, they'll be disappointed or they could potentially be disappointed because even like when I had shown it to horror director friends, I felt like they always had the, like not like a negative reaction, but kind of like kind of a negative reaction just in terms of, I think if, you know, while I'm telling them what I'm working on, like, oh, it's a movie about kids exploding. It's a really different interpretation of what that looks like than what the movie is. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, well, we can't make it horror. And then Paramount had all these rules and like mandates about like, well, the char- like both characters need to be like facing the audience and like three quarter size and all these different things. Um, based on like, you know, if someone's like pushing a shopping cart in like a Walmart in cent- center of America, like they'll be like, Oh, I recognize these people, even though they don't really look like how they look in real life. Um, what is hard to know? What is the audience? Setting it up to this idea of like, Oh, this is like this cute to all the boys kind of, mm-hmm. uh, thing. And then it's like, and also, um, it, we're going to talk about why people exist to begin with <laughs> and, and all that kind of heavy, yes. heavy stuff. Yeah. Cause I'm so fascinated by marketing. Um, I want to talk about the marketing for underwater and how usually with a movie like that, the first thing that they would do in the trailer is show the monsters and they didn't. And I was so, and even on the poster, like I was so inspired by the restraint that they used on the underwater, on the uh, underwater marketing campaign. I just don't think they were done. Okay. Like every other movie in the world with that, they would have been like, Oh, that final monster. Let's just put him in the trailer. Just him. So yeah. I, yeah, like I, so I wasn't, terribly involved in, in like I, I kind of did my writing and then that was more or less the extent of my experience on it. But like, I know the design of the monsters changed a lot kind of leading up to the release. And so, you know, I, I, I know like, I know they test screened the movie with different monsters. Wow. Um, and cause I had friends that saw the movie and then it was like different monsters than what they saw a couple months prior um so i think part of it release the bubble guppy cut release 
yeah, they just come up um, at the end. <laughs> so yeah, I think part of the bubble guppies restraint is, um, but I, I just don't know what they could show. And that was also a movie that, you know, not to make spontaneous sound like it's like a whining, what was me kind of experience, but like that was also another movie that got really um, trapped in that, that. That one was the Fox Disney sale. Um, like that's the last movie that actually says Fox on it, which is great because Murdoch should go to hell. <laughs> um, and I can say that now, which is yeah. great. Um, <laughs> Um, but it was, I mean, it's literally like the last one. And then, you know, that was done, you know, it's funny cause I had the three movies come out this year, um, or in 2020 rather, and none of them were supposed to come out in 2020. It's just kind of like this bizarre, like underwater, I think it was supposed to come out in 18 spontaneous could have come out in 18 or 19. And then, uh, the other one was supposed to come out this March. And then I think Paramount just didn't have any money and we're like, we need to make money and moved it up. Um, and you have credit on the babysitter sequel too, right? Yeah, I did literally nothing. Just the characters that. were continued, right? Yeah. Like they called me about um, it and I was literally in post, like I literally legally couldn't work on it because I was, I was obligated on spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had, I, I'm, but I mean, I, I'm buddies with Samara and her husband, um, Jimmy, um, uh, and everything, and they're they're great. But I had nothing nothing to do with it. So if you love it, it's not my fault. If you hate <laughs> it, it's probably my fault. Yeah. Well, back to what Becca was saying. What what? Tell us what was the original kind of concept, and just in terms of the screenplay and your inspiration for Underwater. In terms of like what kind of monster and where was it the monster Underwater monsters first, or was mm-hmm. it the idea of an like you know a tribute to deep water kind of horror movies? Because just so you know. That's Becca's favorite genre. This is my jam. Yeah, I have a lot of thing. questions. So she was very excited when we went to this movie. She already liked it before we got there, and I had expectations like, this is going to be really bad, but we're going to have fun. And then I was like, wait a minute, this is actually really fun, really good, and it just gets right into it. Because one, one other thing before I say anything, I noticed, and obviously it's, you just said a Spontaneous had it in the book, but Spontaneous and Underwater both start exactly the same way, which is both unconventionally, which is get yeah, rid of 20 pages. Have- yeah, no, no 20 pages yeah, of introduction. Like underwater, the script started completely post earthquake, um, and so the script would have started with, I guess, Kristen's character and Rodrigo, kind of like b- pulling themselves out of. So you didn't even oh. see the earthquake; oh, yeah. and it was just like that into it. Um, and um, under it was a couple of things. It was um, uh, I was really excited to write like a real time horror movie which mm-hmm. i don't it's not quite real time anymore because they added like stops along the way um but it, in the script it was like 10 pages inside walking and then 10 pages inside and it was the whole rest of it was real time so there was that mm-hmm. um and then and that like that being like a, a writing and horror challenge um where basically you, you're just you just have to keep walking and things are just going to keep showing up and ruining your life um and then <laughs> And then I don't know how much of this is in the movie that they made, but I was really um, kind of tired of like the really like heavily emotional disaster things. Like I love gravity. Like gravity is like the best mm-hmm. cinema going experience you can have, but it's like, it's not fun. Like it's fun visual, like, but like the characters aren't having a good time. <laughs> and I, and I react with, humor when I'm really stressed out or freaked out. 
Um, and I think a lot of people do. And so it was a lot of kind of like Sorkin-y um, humor and banter kind of the whole way. Like everyone was very funny um, or stressed out, but it was like a much more um, dialogue heavy kind of, not, it wasn't a comedy, but it was uh, funnier than like, I guess like Lake Placid has a little bit of that too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I find yeah, I find that one pretty fun. Yeah, TJ yeah, Mackey, they've really retained the humor with him. You have one character. And as soon as Will came in, it was just like, I don't. Why are they funny? And like, so I think that that all got chucked out. But then there's um, definitely a little bit of the sardonic. Yeah, TJ TJ Mackey's definitely a full. You you see that character. I like the I like the stress. You know, I I I hate correcting you, but I'm really excited that you called him TJ Mackey after Tom Cruise and Magnolia. And not TJ Miller. <laughs> Good call. I, wish, I wish Tom Cruise's character from Magnolia was just like walking around. That, <laughs> that would be pretty good. You'd have to, you'd have to tame the Lovecraftian monster. I know. Be a whole, <laughs> With nine lives. Um, so, yeah, in the original script, like what was the monster? I am so interested in kind it was of like, like a Leviathan. It changed a couple times too, but it was like a Levi- There was more of them. Uh, so there was like, um, there's like a weird kind of jellyfish ghost kind of thing that kept like joining the crew and like, would like go along with them for a while and then like disappear and then like attack one of them. And like, I think there's like at one point, like they didn't realize one of their crew was missing. Cause there was like this, like kind of like human sized ghosty looking thing that was just following them along and like replaced one of them. Like it was like a very, like the creatures were very, um, they very personality heavy, um, mm. which made them like, freakier for me i thought they would make them freakier if they were just like i'm one of the crew and like it's just like this weird thing that they don't know what it is and haven't seen before um and then um yeah it was like you know i'm a big underwater nerd too so it was like i think a little bit more accurate kind of stuff um and then um you know and and i don't know you might have been to this Rebecca, um, if you've been to the, um, on Lankershim in LA, there's a, a horror playhouse called Zombie Joe's. Yeah. I've been yeah. to Urban Death, um, probably yeah, yeah, yeah. four or five times now. The crab, yeah, did so the crab scuttling. Have been, were you there the year that they did that? Yeah. They turned on the light. Every year until this yeah. time I've gone and it's always been, that got me really into darkness and horror and really trying to figure like how, I could write a horror movie. And like some of that is really funny too. Like when they pull out like a comedy sketch in the middle of it, it's so great. And they're always so twisted as well. Yeah. And so so what like they do is it's like, you're all sitting on the floor and then like the lights come on like 5% and like a little like 10 second horror scene plays out in front of you. That's dialogue free. And then the lights go out again completely. And you just kind of sit in darkness and you don't know how long. And sometimes there's like weird sounds near you and then the lights will come on again. And sometimes it'll just be like a dude like running at you and screaming and the lights will go out. And then sometimes it'll be like, I remember they had one where there's a couple having sex and there's like sheet over them. And then like the sheet falls and you realize like the guy underneath the girl has a toe tag on and he's dead. And like, as soon as you kind of get the joke and let the lights go out and it's dark again. And so I was like really hooked on this, like, darkness and how you play that for horror and comedy 
and you can't really do it in like and none of it was really like jump scare either like it was like mm-hmm. a really fun like kind of roller coaster like i don't know what's gonna happen um and uh you know it's probably like fucking sorry i, I don't know if i can swear <laughs> it's probably, yeah, like probably like shark or something and then i was just like oh like the ocean floor is such a good way to play with that darkness. Um, and then you're trapped too, which was like, as for me, it was like a real challenge about like how, to, and like, I think that's why my monsters had personalities. Cause it was like, well, why don't they just all get eaten like immediately? And it was just like, well, if the creatures are just like, this is like, I'm, I'm up, like I'm up from like, uh, let's just like check things out. And like, I don't know what things are. Um, and playing with that darkness where like things are really dark and the only lights are like their helmets. Like I remember, I think when I sold it, I was like, you know, I think you can shoot a lot of this, not even like on a stage, just like make it their lights. And then if you're having characters like really banter kind of back and forth in their helmets and then like, like a weird hand comes and pulls them, like you can do that really cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think they were just like, we want it to be expensive. Um, <laughs> but like, that's, it treats that was- darkness like the descent a bit, I yeah. think. The movie that yeah, and it was like for me, it was like, well, what's the way to use that darkness and then like really pull out like some really bizarre laughs? <laughs> because I feel like that's one of the things I love the most. Well, like a horror movie does it right. Um, like it's such a great audience kind of experience where you, if you think the thing running, you know, like the the obvious dorky version is like you think the thing running towards you is bad and it turns out to be a puppy kind of thing. But it was like you could. Like it was like even the puppy on the ocean floor is really bad news, <laughs> but you can have a lot of fun with that, um, that tension, um, and then uh, yeah. So I'm sure that was a very rambly kind of answer, but it was like that one was in particular like kind of like a weird stew of like I really wanted to write a real time thing, I really wanted to write like a kind of disaster thing that was fun, and then I was obsessed with this darkness uh thing that zombie joe's was doing and then always being like a a sea nerd and then it just kind of all sucked together yeah Yeah. (laughs) obviously you've got i mean just within this past year i mean you're very prolific with the amount of stuff that you're spinning out and how kind of vastly different it is from each other how what is your process like are you a post-its guy are you a guy who fills notebooks before you even get started um, you know, or do you just jump into the screenplay and kind of paint yourself into a corner? Like what is your process with it? Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't think I was prolific as it seems. Um, like, so even like love and monsters, the, the script that became love and monsters, I, I sold that and stopped, I think working on that in 2012. Oh, wow. Um, and statement then, for Hollywood. We always say right. it takes an average of seven years to make anything here. Yeah. Um, and, and that's not an exaggeration. Yeah, and then Underwater, I think it was like 2015 or four. Like it might have been 14. And then Spontaneous was really fast. So I think that was like 17. Um, and then they all just come out at the same time and everyone's like, you work so much. I'm like, great. Was um, the babysitter one that took a long time in the process? The babysitter um, was really fast too. Like I wrote that sold that right after I got married. So that was like 2013. And then that I think got filmed in 2014. And then I think that took, because that was at a studio and then they got sent to Netflix. So I think that also had like a longer, it didn't come out like when you would have thought it would have come out. Like, I think the only, I think I've had been lucky enough to have six movies get made. I think the only one, 
that's come out, how it was planned to come out was the Divergent sequel <laughs> I worked on. Um, like everything else has been like, we made it at this studio and we sold it to this studio or like this studio no longer exists or it's going theatrical and now it's going to streaming. And so I, I'm very agnostic about like where a movie winds up um, because I'm just like, n- it never turns out the way everyone assumes. And it's not like a quality thing. It's just like sometimes, you know, Rupert Murdoch is just like, I want to make billions of dollars and sell this studio. And then you're just like the movie that cost $70 million, which is a lot less than the however many billions he sold that studio for. Mm-hmm. Um, Has that changed you at all in terms of your approach? And also this year, like seeing work in a different way, like obviously most of the stuff hasn't been able to go theatrical and seeing that we still don't know what the hell is going to happen. No one knows, right? Does it change how you are as a creator in terms of like, say your next film that you're going to say write and direct? Does it make you go, I want to make something smaller, but have full control or I'm willing to just see what happens and kind of roll the dice on each project? Yeah, I mean, even look at like what just happened with Warner Brothers, where like you know they're like the Matrix Four is gonna go to HBO Max, and you're like, like who saw that coming? If that's yeah. Um and so I think for me, it's about making something that at the end of the day I'm proud of, which is very rare uh, in my experience. Like I'm very proud of spontaneous, um, and you know I think for me, like I have a lot of frustrations with the rollout and like the studio on on spontaneous and stuff like that. But the actual movie itself, I'm like, this is, you know, this is everything I could have done um, at that moment in time with the resources that I had kind of thing. And, you know, so I think for me, it's like just wanting to make things that I like and just, you know, I, I could make the, you know, I could, it does like, especially now it's where you're just kind of like, you know, it could be like a $200 million Disney or Warner brothers movie and it could go to streaming Yeah, and you're just kind of like, that's not the intention, but if it's a good movie, it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's only the first place it's going. I mean, I think I look at spontaneous and I go, okay, there's a movie in my mind that's going to have the kind of legs, like, you know, 15, 20 years from now, young people will just keep discovering it because it's going to mean so. different things. Yeah. And that's what a lot of movies we all lo- fell in love with when we were young. It's yeah. not usually the first audience that gets it, you know? Yeah. Like I've never been like a big theatrical. I love going to the movies. Right. Um, but I think there's a real privilege that comes from getting to go to the movies yeah. um, that people forget about really quickly. Um, and I think, you know, growing up, especially for me, like, yeah, like going and seeing like Jurassic Park when I was like seven, it was like the experience um, in a movie theater. But like out after that, like a lot of the movies that were like the formative things. And I think this is true. Of most movie people are the movies that I saw on VHS or DVD or TV late night. Yeah. And it doesn't, um, you know, like I love Lawrence of Arabia way before I saw it in theaters. Um, evil dead too. Doesn't care where you watch it. It's yeah. evil dead too, wherever you watched it. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I'm very, like, I think I'm, I feel sometimes like I'm a, I'm a rarity where like, I just don't care. And I think partially it's because it's never gone the way it's meant to have gone for the majority of the things I've worked on. But then also I, you know, like I just, you know, if it's good and I'm proud of it, like that's literally all I can control. Um, like not kind of getting into like what spontaneous is about. Um, but you know, beyond that, it's like, I can't control how people see it. Like if they're going to watch on their Apple watch, you know, they're going to watch on their Apple watch. Um, and if they're going to see it in like 
a theater, like that's also, you know, that's great. And it's like, I, you know, there's just as a filmmaker, unless you are literally, you know, Spielberg, Nolan, like, you know, a very, like, yeah. And clear, clearly not even like the Denny Villeneuve's or the Wachowski's like, you know, the very, very, very like top couple that can say like, my movie has to go theatrical. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, it's just, I think at this point it's a, it's a losing battle to kind of have any kind of um, determination of where your movie comes out. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a corporation that's going to release it that doesn't care about the movie in terms of like, it's not good or bad. It's just like, it's a profit making. Yeah. It's, always the profit model over yeah, and it's the best just, viewer experience. Yeah. And you know, so it's just not up to the filmmaker in my, in my experience. And so it just seems like something that I don't like, I, I maybe I should care more, but I, especially, and that, that was before COVID too, but like, you know, especially now where I'm just like, you know, as long as people see it or, and like it, you know, I, I, like and there's definitely you know, if spontaneous was on Netflix, a lot more people would have seen it. Um, and so like there's like those kind of frustrations, I guess. But I, again, I had no, I had no say in Paramount buying the movie. I had no say in how it was released. You know, it's you know you're kind of along for the ride, and um, and also it's the kind of thing like in you know even now if not even a year from now like no one will remember how it came out either <laughs> like they'll remember how they saw it for the first time but there won't be any kind of um like i think very few people kind of remember like oh that was released limited or theatrical like i think people yeah. very soon won't like once especially once covid goes away will like never really know that it like oh it played in like five theaters for a week in texas during a pandemic kind of like it's no one knows and especially with the streaming platforms, like I struggle to remember if I first watched something on Netflix or Prime mm-hmm. or where I saw it, like, or HBO Max. Now they just all kind of blend. Um, in the yeah, for way. sure. But you mentioned, um, so we're going to end with the beginning. Um, you mentioned that you found your formative years um, and kind of the horror movies that you think kind of most shaped you on VHS. What were some of the ones that you still kind of look back on and go, okay, you know what, that did something. That was something that really was formative for me. Like Jurassic was a huge one for sure. That wasn't VHS, but like that was, I feel like like there's like the Star Wars kids and there's like the Jurassic yep. kids. I remember there's like the Lord of the Rings kids and that was like a really big one too. I remember um, seeing Jurassic with my parents, which never happened. Like my parents, yeah. we would never go to the theater as a family, but that was like this event for seeing it. And, and yeah, it was a big deal. I just showed yeah, my six yeah. and a half year old that for the first time. And it was really fun to show Jurassic Park. You know, it's just one of those movies that it's not so scary that you can't handle it, but it's got those quiet moments right before the the fear be- kicks in that yeah. works so well to keep you just enraptured, you know? Yeah. It just, it just, it's a, it, it's a movie. Yeah. <laughs> like it just works. Um, i trying to think of it's the ones that like, especially like at home. Um, I can't remember. There was like, um, it was like a night I rented when I, I was like staying with my grandmother for like a, a couple of weeks and I like, she drove me to Blockbuster and I would just rent things that I, I had like heard about, like kind of in like the pre or very early internet days. And I remember there was like one night where I rented Punch Drunk Love and Spirited Away. It kind of fed and seen. And like, I remember watching them back to back and it just being like this, like 
you know, I felt like I like got electrocuted. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, they so both have was, a similar tone in terms of like a, a magical kind of, yeah, whimsical like, yeah, quality yeah. to both of them. Yeah. Yeah. So that was like a big one. And then like, you know, growing up to, um, I didn't have access to a lot of things and it was especially like in the pre-internet days where you had to like wait like 30 minutes for like the quick time trailer for like fellowship of the ring to download. Um, but I would like get scripts like, like when they were like in HTML for like classics. And so I would read a lot of scripts and then it wasn't until I went to college, um, that I started kind of being able to like watch the movies for the scripts. Um, and so that was a really interesting experience where I had a lot of, or I mean, like not just scripts, I guess like, you know, like those junior novelizations um, for a lot of movies where like I would read them like religiously because um, I didn't have access to, to movies and then getting to see them, you know, I think there's, it's like a part of like that caveman movie maker part of your brain where it all looks really weird and different because you would live with, you know, I think there's like the novelization of like Twister or something, hmm. um, you know, like just things that like don't really, you know, they're not necessarily uh, classics even, but you just, you build a movie in your mind mm-hmm. for years. And then you're like, I, all the things that I'm seeing are what I remember reading, but they're all very different um, and strange. And it, like taking like, sometimes it, like I remember I love the script for taxi driver <laughs> bizarrely and then i didn't see it until i was in college and i hated it because it was so different from what i read even though it was like word for word what i read it took me like two or three times to kind of like shed the movie that i assembled in my mind um and i think that kind of also wound up giving me like the directing bug because i was making movies in my mind based on reading scripts and then i would see other people do it and like even if it's like the best movie of all time like taxi driver I'd be like, that's wrong. That's not how I saw it in my head. It's not Paul um, Schrader's v- version. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it was like, and it wasn't, and it was just having assembled movies for so long without seeing like a trailer for them or anything. And, you know, I don't think kids nowadays will ever have that experience because of the internet. Um, what about tone and horror? Like, uh, like, cause your stuff so far uh, has all been, you know, mostly has a horror comedy comedies or comedy horror, whatever you want to put it first. Yeah. Tone, were you drawn to those types of movies like the Raimi type stuff or were you into horror that actually, you know, uh, scared the pants off you? What was your, you know, it was, I grew up very conservative. And so when I was able to bring movies home, like horror was probably the hardest one to get, to get in the house. Um, like I remember my, my parents being like really anti Stephen King and like, I would like sneak Stephen King books in. And so I think Stephen King was probably, a more formative part of that than like, I, I think even like the evil dead stuff, I don't think I saw that until college. And like, I, I feel like the Spielberg horror was kind of like the, the line mm-hmm. uh, of horror um, where it's like that kind of fun house PG 13. Um, and that's also really like Jaws is hilarious. Yeah. Um, and so I think that was kind of more, and then a lot of the Stephen King stuff is, is really funny. Um, and then, yeah, I think just, I never, I, I love tone, but I love tone when I can really do stuff. Like, I, I feel like not, I feel like the tonal tightrope walking stuff, it's a tightrope because I enjoy it so, so much, um, as opposed to like just doing, you know, like the elephant version of spontaneous, um, where it's like, that's a lot really, less fun. 
Yeah, that doesn't yeah, like sound it's just, very cool. I, I just think, and I think, you know, it's like, I remember like when I first started showing people spontaneous, um, like everyone was like, it's so you. And yeah. like, it's like that thing, like I'm not trying to make a me thing, but it's like, it's like very, you know, it's like the spontaneous is like the bloodiest, cute movie about death either. So it's like, there's just a lot of like that weird I think also like you know the early Burton stuff is probably is zanier than than I go, but you know like Lydia and Beetlejuice is such a real character mm. with reacting to things a little oddly, but like she has such humanity to her, um, and so like that stuff is like a very zany horror. So I feel like that kind of like PG horror was kind of more influential than like the Raimi stuff. Even though I love it now, but in terms of like the stuff that was like building my, my DNA. Like it took, it definitely was like a college experience where I was like seeing Carrie or the exorcist or, you know, any, I'm trying to think. It's always interesting. The directors who didn't get to see horror movies when they're young. Like I know Wes Craven was one who it wasn't until he got to college that he saw his first Mm -hmm. horror film because of religious, you know, family upbringing and what, what an impression that can then make, how it can change like a catharsis, I guess. Yeah. Um, Oh, and X-Files was a big one too. Cause that was like a thing where I could like sneak that show like if my parents were in the other room i could like watch a little x files and it's really funny yeah and then really scary too um i think people forget how funny um that show was oh um, yeah like not even like the comedy episodes but like just the dynamic that they had can be really funny and really romantic and really sweet and then there's this you know monster of the week whatever um so yeah like i i don't know what the actual like dna strand we know was in particular, but yeah, I, I, I don't think I'm trying to think what like the first like R rated horror movie I saw was, I think the ring was PG 13, which Mm -hmm. is crazy too. I remember like, I think I saw the ring and like the Shyamalan stuff in theaters. Also all PG or PG 13. Yeah. And so like, I'm trying to think of like the, like the really, cause even like the babysitter script was PG 13. It was way less violent than how McGee, did it. And then spontaneous was our, because there was just no way around it. I think we leaned in, like, I think with the kids and everything, we leaned into it. And like with the profanity, my wife hates how much the profanities there is in the movie, but we were just, I think everyone was like, we really don't want someone to buy the movie and like make them poof into smoke. Yeah. I think in the book, they like, like, I think in the book covers, they changed it into like, they're like poofs of smoke, mm-hmm. like not in the content of the book, but like in the covers. And so I think like Catherine and Charlie and everyone, there was like a awareness of like, what if like people love the movie, but someone buys the movie and it's like too bloody PG 13. And so everyone was like, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> it was like, it was like a, a blood yeah. I think yeah. that that was the most effective choice because at the end of the day, if someone just poofs into smoke, it's very easy to not feel the actual violence and repercussions of what's yeah. going on. And by having them explode and it be blood and guts splashing everyone around them, like it was much more of an impact. Yeah, than it's, it's, what it, yeah it's what it, it's like, you know, it's visually, it's interesting. But then also it is like, it does have to like, what is the, um, the mark? It, I mean, it does eventually leave a, a real physical mark on, on Catherine. Um, and it's existential, I think for a young, any person to look at the insides of a body, it's a very Cronenberg idea, but when you're looking at that and going, yeah. this is what we are, this is all, all that's left of these pieces for sure. inside yeah. out, you know, it's, I, 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 I thought that was very, it's like the, uh, 
Star Trek, the, the aliens that call them like uh, fleshy bags of mostly water. <laughs> um, and it's like, yeah. And that, I think that was like the line I used to like, when I was like talk, talking to the crew, it's like they're fleshy ba- bags of mostly water. Like, there's no hair, there's no bone, there's no guts even. Um, like it's literally just like this kind of like this splash. Cause I, it was like that. It was like, how gory can I make it so that 10 year olds that hate horror will love the movie? Mm-hmm. It was like kind of like a weird zone. Cause we <laughs> talked about it being like the, the kind of the gateway drug movie. And it's been cool to see, you know, um, and it's, it's typically women, I would, I would say, but like people get really, they get really curious about it. And like, they ask you about like, how did you do it? Like what kind of blood guns were there? And like, I showed them like the videos of the blood guns and you can kind of see like, this is how it is in all horror movies. And then it kind of like triggers that like, I bet there are things that are like more hardcore than this. And it kind of gets into like, I really want to see the prosthetic work of like, like it, 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 there's something I've noticed that it, it does kind of lead itself to being, it takes out like the gore aspect for, people that are squeamish and kind of makes it like an interesting, like, how did you do that? Mm-hmm. And then they get really into like, I saw this crazy Giallo film <laughs> and it's like, I was really interested to see how they separated that leg with a chainsaw kind of thing. And it kind of makes them, you know, I, I like being like baby's first horror film. Yeah. <laughs> yes. trauma. I love it. I love uh, it. What about, what's the next one? Like, I mean, so you've done underwater babysitters. You've got a slasher themes. You have a film that's ostensibly a, a slasher that just doesn't have a slasher in it. People exploding. A couple <laughs> monsters. Like what's next? Yeah. Well, I, I started right. listing for something that sounded supernatural. So I was curious. Not that you can tell us yeah, much. I don't, obviously, I don't, yeah. I don't know a hundred percent. I mean, it's tough with COVID. Um, uh, but I, th- I think it will be a, um, uh, a strange alien movie, um, um, that I'm, I'm in the middle of, of casting, uh, right now and is, um, oddly COVID perfect. You know, it was written before COVID. Um, but it is much more of a balls to the wall horror film oh, cool. than, um, than a comedy. So uh, I think I'm, I'm going to take a break from the, the, the comedy for a, a minute. Um, but the, saying that I means the next thing I do will probably be another high school comedy. Even though it's the last thing I want to do. Yeah. Um, Surrender to the yeah, universe. Yeah, I think it'll be this, this <laughs> alien thing I wrote called No One Will Save You. Um, and um, it's, it's, it should be a, a, a good, a good alien time. But it might not be. I, don't, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm just I've never seen uh, one that I saw at the end of last year that I missed was by the Blair Witch guys. Uh, Altered. I'd never seen that oh, movie. Yeah. It is fucking tastic. It's one of those. Oh, it's. It has it has a cover that looked like Blair Witch, so I thought it was found footage, and I just was like, I never saw it. And it is not like that. It's like Evil Dead too. It's like full on. Uh, it kind of they take this thing into a garage and they're trying to figure out what this alien who had abducted a friend of theirs 15 years earlier. And it's really intense. So if you're looking for just fun, oh, cool. It's really. Good. I'm always like nervous about like since I'm working on it. Yeah, I'm always like, do I watch? Do I not watch? And then it's been funny. It's like sometimes people bring up like, oh, it's like that. I'm like, I never saw that. And then like I watch. I'm like, it's so much like that. <laughs> so I'm always like. What's the like line of deniability versus me being an asshole and just being like, oh, I stole that. Well, you can um, wait till after. <laughs> I know, but yeah, I love. I mean, Blair Witch is so yeah. good. Yeah. Um, like I watched that again a year ago, and it's like I feel like there was like a period of time there where people liked shitting on it 
Um, but that movie just works. Like that is as good of a horror movie. I think that's ever been like, it's, 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 it's astonishing how that movie works. Well, I think this year we had the host was similar this year. I felt like most was great. Making something in the time it's made that just completely works and will work 10 years from now too. So yeah, totally. It was, yeah. I don't even know how they pulled that out so fast for it to be as good, like genuinely good. As is, yeah, this was a really good year for horror. I think your list yeah. is kind of fucked up, Rebecca. No, no, this is still, this is the one that had the most impact on me. It's what it's I, I, the most 2020. Yeah, it was the most 2020. Yeah. I cried during this movie and I haven't done that through most of 20. I mean, I've cried <laughs> continuously through 2020, but not movie related crying. Um, so yeah. I didn't listen to you. I, I, I'm way like Evan, the director, Evan Katz told me about your list. So I, I love Evan. Oh my God. That's yeah. awesome. I'm way too, it'll make my skin crawl, but like, I just saw his house. Mm-hmm. Oh was God. Like- that was, that was, I think our number, it was my number two or three. It was, was definitely like, really high up. I thought, um, yeah. It's like, this is a, this is, that's a, that's a movie. <laughs> what's weird is I've had to convince people to watch that. Um, because yeah. they it's all a are title, like, I think yeah, they're all like, I don't know. It's like international, which makes me cringe that people would even say that to begin with. But yeah. that's one that I've seen people on Twitter. Like, Oh yeah, I keep seeing people talk about this. I don't know. And I'm like, Oh, just go in, just go in. So, yeah. yeah. Well, can I ask what else is on your list? Um, oh gosh, his or house, the highlights. Um, I can do some highlights. Like, I, I know we both had his house. We both had Relic, um, yeah. the Australian alone. film. I thought Alone yeah. was really too. I loved Alone. Yeah, I, yeah. Really I really like Relic, but like Alone was one of those things. I had platform I, like, on my list. In, I was just like, this is good. Yeah. Like, it was like, you know, when you rent things off iTunes. It looks generic. Like, it looks, it looks like yeah. it's going to be a generic thriller. I'm like, I have seen this movie a lot. Yeah. Um, and it was just so well done. Like I was to I confuse was so you weird. further, because uh, I do a, a non horror podcast or just a general. On that one, I had I have spontaneous higher on my films of the year list than on my horror films. On my horror films, it's like four, four or five, but on my films, it's like number two. <laughs> so it, it just goes to show we all put things in boxes. You know, it's like oh yeah, I feel like there's like two horror scenes in spontaneous, and then there's just like a lot of like weird comedic dread. Yeah. For me, and I mentioned this before the show, yeah. if, if it had been a slasher, like if there had actually been a slasher taking down the kids one by one, if it had been a parasite, if it had been an alien, a government experiment, something just reaching up from the ground and pulling them down and then blood right. sprays up, we would immediately call it a horror yeah. film. Just because we don't know what it is, I think that people are immediately like, I don't know if this is a horror film. Um, and because the focus is the love story, but even that disqualifies it because I can name ample horror films where the focus is the love story, but oh, totally. there's horror yeah. elements. So yeah, for me, funny, like, um, when, yeah, but I tend like, to be really kind of genre fluid. Um, oh, yeah. So yeah. There's like a while there where like, we didn't know what was happening with the movie and another place saw the movie and like liked it. And they were like, we do have like a note that would like require like at least ADR. And I was like, all right, what's the note? And they were like, could it be a sniper? Oh. I was like, what? And oh they were like, God. yeah, it'd be like really cool if it was like a sniper. And I was just like, I don't know. Firstly, no. But then I was like, even trying to wrap my head around like, oh thing. And I was just like, cause it was so funny. It was like, you know, so much of the time had been um, like 
positioning the movie that it wasn't the school shooter movie. Um, because uh, we or not we don't have a single gun, um, and then like how like one of these places like the first thing they said was like what if there was just like a guy with a gun and he was just shooting them and they were like exploding and I was like that's not how guns work. Um, but also like, I'm never gonna work again. That's also a completely different movie. If there is no rationale, there is no reason, there is yeah. no way to control it. You can be sardonic with it because it is very much a surrender yourself to the universe. If it's a sniper, I taught in <laughs> while the sniper was going on. I was there for the entire thing. It's a completely different. Feel. There was very nothing different. fucking sardonic about that. Well, and we're um, filling yeah, in the yeah. blanks. I mean, that's the cool thing about this movie. We're filling in the blanks of what the existential dread is. It's our own. Yeah. We fill it, fill it in and we go with it. And so the timing of this one was this event. Yeah. Uh, a few years from now, who knows what it will be. But uh, Teen Hood will always have angst. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. Teen hood will always have that. So yeah. yeah, it's been really interesting to see the, um, it's been interesting to make something and then have its interpretation be completely altered by the time it comes out in, um, where it's like, I have no kind of what we were saying about the theatricals. Like I have no control about, you know, obviously like this pandemic, but how it has definitely shaped how people have viewed, um, the movie, which was never an intention of mine or Catherine or Charlie or anybody's, mm-hmm. it's been really interesting kind of living in this, like, accidentally making, like, the 2020 COVID movie uh, <laughs> like, kind of thing. And how everyone that sees it brings up how prevalent it is now, even though it came out, or even though I finished making it two years ago kind of thing. And then it just happened to come out in October. Um, well, it's like when you lose somebody now versus normal life, it's always tragic when people lose someone. But I feel like if you've, if anyone's been around lost during this period, you're, you're not seeing anyone. So it's just like they're gone. It's like the Facebook post yeah. and then you don't see them and then there's no funeral and there's no nothing. So I feel like there's something in your film that really does echo that sense of just what snap of the fingers. What are you going to do with your time? You know, uh, yeah. whatever you have. So I don't know. It's, it's, to me, it's, it's great. It's, and it and really is a movie that meant a lot to both of us. So, you know, yeah. part of this is just to say thanks and, you know, keep up with your work. You know, it's, and it's I, I will say on a final note, thank you for your, um, magic mushroom interpretation in the, the movie because it was, um, much more true to life. Usually when filmmakers include mushroom scenes, I don't know if you've partaken and I don't want to I've reveal never, too much. I have a like phobia that. of mushrooms, so I've never done that. But in general, like mushrooms across the board or just the, the psychotic, the psycho like, one. No, like in like something about him just freak like any fungus, I guess. Oh, what you did most of the time when I see filmmakers use mushrooms in any capacity, immediately you are zooming through space talking to the devil, and it yours it came on slow. It was very subtle. The actual conversations, what was happening, was still there. Just the perception was slightly altered, and that. Yeah. That's always been my experience. It's never been zooming through space talking to the devil. It's always just been like <laughs> that. You can see like the poster is shaking and it didn't used to do that and things like that. It's much yeah, more like yeah, a yeah. resonation in things. So um, maybe yeah, I've just never taken it up, but yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. It's in the books. The shrooms is in the book. And so I knew I was going to use it. And then I thought of the line, um, uh, that Catherine has about doing shrooms at the end of the movie. And I was like, oh, that's really great. But I was also you know, kind of excited that I feel like a lot of movies um, have really, or when they do like the drug thing, I'm always like, why would anyone ever do drugs? Because it seems awful. Um, 
as opposed to, you know, people do drugs because it's fun, presumably. Um, and so I was like, I, it, she should have like a fun um, experience where she like falls in love with this boy um, and it not being like super weird, but it being like something where, you know, for me, it was really like she sees, you know, a couple of them and it's like fun. And then at the end, when she can't see him again, it's like this thing that like really haunts her. <laughs> felt like a very kind of cruel, maybe isn't the right word, but just that kind of thing where she had like a really lovely experience that first time they hung out, even though she was on drugs and it was stupid of her and whatever. Um, uh, and then it being something that she's like, I, you know. I didn't realize how important a moment that was in my life kind of thing. <laughs> so I'm glad. And I was always like, part of me was like, I should do shrooms before directing this stupid thing. And then I just couldn't get over it. Um, like Roger Corman did LSD for, uh, he was really straight laced. Like Corman didn't even smoke weed for the most part. And he did LSD before doing the trip. And his stories about that are pretty funny. Like he's, uh, yeah, like it just was like, I don't think I could ever do LSD for some reason no. that freaks me out. Chemicals freak me out. Like yeah. Once or twice yeah. I ate a shroom and that's all I could describe it as like the universe was resonating. It wasn't like I was talking to the devil yeah. or God called me on the phone or anything cool like that. It was just resonating. Becca ends every interview talking about fungus. So it's not fungus. <laughs> where, I am. Just where we end up. Next one we're so, doing portobellos. And yeah. yeah. It's like uh, the, uh, the second season of the OA. <laughs> uh, my wife worked on, on the OA and I love Zoll and Brit. And it was just like, they were like, you know, they're grow- growing like the weird shrooms out of, um, people, I was just like, oh no! <laughs> it was like the X Files episode where it's um, oh yeah, mushrooms that actually consume you and make you think you are elsewhere. That's, oh, that's some crazy cool. yeah, shit. Yeah, I like that that Last of Us stuff. Oh yeah, I'm like yeah, I don't want to get like a parasite in my brain that's gonna make me click and like grow like shrooms out of my eyes or whatever. Oh <laughs> my god, yeah, that's well. There's those ants. <laughs> This gets into like my super yeah. geeky side. Um, is oh, like yeah. there's actually the fungus that grows inside of ants that bursts from their s- skulls yep. and spores fly out and then infects other ants and it's the most fucked up natural natural thing ever. Yeah, I love those YouTubes. Yeah, watching the ants. All right, before we go down that rabbit hole, I have to cut it. I, I'm getting. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to go down the ant rabbit hole of YouTube. Um, hey, we look forward to seeing the next four films you have this year coming out. Oh, uh, yes. Twenty-one, four or five films. Uh, but no, really great work, and you know, get hopefully you get through the rest of this pandemic. Uh, <laughs> More aquatic horror. Oh, I think I'm uh, landing in the ocean again. Um, I'll take aliens. I will take some aliens, definitely. Yeah. I I feel like I have to, it's like, I'm just checking off like the nerdy stuff until I just do awards bait. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see that. I know I'm getting older. I'm like, history is actually interesting. And so I'm like, I got to get these things out. Wait till you have kids and then suddenly all you're watching is bubble guppies and then all your ideas shift to 10 year olds. Well, you got 10 year olds. Elmo is king, and then um, she's really into horses, so like that spirit show on- Spirit. Oh, God, I watched so much spirit. Love the horses. Um, And then just like in the last week or two, the baby shark has has hit, so Uh, that's fun. We we sang that continuously for six months. Um, Everything on the entire Pink Fong album, um, just continuous. Yeah, Yeah. she hasn't figured out quite the dictation of saying Alexa- um, but she like will just scream like Alexa, play Baby Shark, and then like just screams at our Alexa to play Baby Shark, and hasn't quite mastered the Alexa part, but it's it's close. And then we're just throwing it out. Oh yeah, 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so thank much you for joining us, Brian. Have an awesome evening and um, happy 2021. I hope it gets better. Okay, y'all. So it is time for some deep cuts. So this week's selection came about because I, um, over the holiday, one of the Christmas presents I received was I got this massive Edgar Allan Poe tome mm. of like most of his works. Like a really, I also got a HP Lovecraft one. Um, so I've been looking through and I reread Poe's Black Cat because I was thinking about how for a long time, that was a movie that a lot of people were adapting, especially when you look like the 60s, because we were talking about like that was part of the there was a version of it in the Poe Corman cycle where it kind of came out and during that time. And I remember then that I'd seen a couple of different Italian versions of it as well. And so I decided over the holiday to go back and watch all of the Italian versions of the Black Cat, all of the major ones. So we had full cheese. From 1981, which I know you had seen before, mm-hmm. Alaric. Yeah, for, for the first time when we did the Fulci draft, yeah. And it was okay. It was a little dry. Um, it, it had some moments for me, but it was it was definitely the driest of the three. And then there's Argento's one, which is part of Two Evil Eyes, mm-hmm. which is bonkers. It gets totally Argento. It goes completely off the rails. But I have to say, my favorite of the three is our deep cut for this week, and this is... Luigi Cozy's version of the Black Cat from 1989. Okay, so now I'm going to interject. Why on the face of this earth is this movie called The Black Cat when it's the, it doesn't t- the only thing that this has to do with the it's like the dumbest title for such a unique crazy movie which and it is an awesome crazy movie but in it. at the no at the start of this movie they are making a film version of The Black Cat and that is about one one hundredth of the movie. The rest they are making a freaking Suspiria. <laughs> they are making a Suspiria. So why this is called? Why they settled on the uh, the least uh, used element of the? It was also apparently called Demon Six at one point, which kind of shocked. I'm me. sure it was a La Casa, probably an Evil Dead as well. I know well. it's crazy. Yeah. It's- um. But yeah, this one. I loved this film. I love. I can't it. believe I didn't, didn't know this existed. I, I knew I've seen the cover, but I didn't know it was in the universe of Suspiria, which it literally is. It's such a three mothers film because literally it is. They they reference Suspiria. It's very meta on Suspiria, where it's very much like yes, yes. Years ago, Argento made this film Suspiria about the three mothers. This film is also going to be about the three mothers, and you, you are actress, you are going to be playing the third mother, the witch in it, and then that witch actually starts haunting her, saying, no one can ever play me, and kind of it brings her back to life, and she is fucking crazy looking. Yeah, Lavana. So, so yeah. My note, my first note, I was, I had no idea that that was what this was. And so, if you had told me this, I would have watched it a lot quicker. Yeah, you just said, "Oh, it's Black Cat." And I was like, "Okay, I'll watch this one forever." And I'm sitting there going, "Wait a minute, what the hell?" Like, we had just been talking on our deep cut about a film called The Spider Labyrinth, and we were making all these illusions. It would be the perfect third one. Well, now I will not rest until we get to play. Oh no, we want to. No, I still think Spider Labyrinth the third. This should be fourth. I feel like this is the one you play after you've seen the other three to be like, uh, I wrote this should be. Uh, this is a three mothers finale. Uh, by LSD Charlie Kaufman it, it, because it's, it's got much, that Kaufman thing you know it's the new nightmare of Kaufman yeah. of, yeah. of 
three mothers movies where it's about the making of them, but this mother seems to be worse than any of the other mothers ever were. Um, and yeah, there is there is this strong LSD thing going on throughout. It's just it as well. it's just a real trip. And Carolyn Monroe's in it from Starcrash, one of my earliest, uh, and uh, obviously Maniac, uh, one of my early crushes. She's 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 fun and kind of has huge hair in this as the competing rival who wants the role. But it's really just oh, about her getting hair. her hair is ridiculous in this, you know. But it is it's so it's just yeah it's literally just like they're making a movie of the Black Cat and their next project's going to be. Uh, they even talk about. I mean, that's what's blew me away. They're like, yeah, Dario Gentile made these other two movies but he didn't do the third one and while they're talking the Suspiria music starts playing and I'm like say, oh my soundtrack. god it's yeah, like they talk all about it so it's super interesting and parts of it are really cheesy in that late 80s like people running around the house with a, a light on it and some some kind of heavy metal music some parts don't work as well as others and then other parts are really atmospheric and crazy and then the self-referential stuff's just fascinating when you look at it as probably this is a guy who, so just so people know who cozy is, and he actually is going to be one of my deep cuts, a movie we were going to mention on here, a really good giallo he directed early on. Um, he wrote uh, two of Argento's earliest ones. He wrote cat and nine tails and four flies on gray velvet. Which and then I love, four yeah, flies. they're both good scripts. And then he did second unit on ladder Argento stuff. So this is obviously a loving tribute. He obviously had permission to do this and probably Argento said, yeah, I'm never going to do the third one. So just do whatever you want. And that's probably how this came about. But I just can't believe we, as people who are so into these movies and into that world, never knew about this one in yeah. relation to these other two films. It's just bizarre. And I definitely had seen some other Luigi Cozy stuff, like Contamination. Yeah, Contamination's a big one, yeah. He is always just spot on with the special effects. Like, he yeah. is, it is, he is just great with those. This one actually fuels into what I consider to be kind of a phobia at this point, but I don't even know if it was a diagnosable phobia at that time, which is fear of holes in the skin. Oh, yeah. The witch right. is covered head to toe in these lumpy holes like, like what's on a shower head that yeah. um, the gross like what's thing. on a shower head or or yeah just like lumpy holes in her skin um trichnosis or it's actually got like a, i can't even it's say become it a now. big Trich- thing on the internet you trichnosis, often see it it's not trichnosis that's like a parasite but yeah there is like an actual tryptophobia that's it tryptophobia yeah. um and the witch is covered head to toe in it and it's horrifying to look at because of that yeah, and it, it, when it starts out, you're not sure if it's somebody trying to drive. Like I kind of was like, is somebody just trying to drive this lead actress mad so she won't take the role? Um, but really, it's like, no, there really is a witch out there, and we're going to try to stop you from making a film about it because if you do it, it'll only get worse. And that's it, that's what it becomes. But it, it's a trip, and it's fun, and it's dumb, but it's also got like some crazy stuff in it. So mm-hmm. it, you know, know what you're in for. It doesn't measure up to Suspiria Inferno in any of those ways, but it's a different kind of film. And I do think you can have a lot of fun with it. And that's a new release from Severin, right? Yes, that just came out probably within the last month. Yeah, and so definitely check into our deep cut this week because uh, this next deep cut because I'll I'll tie it in with a giallo that connects to cozy. Uh, that's a lot of fun. Um, so that is a movie that is many movies, and and I'm really glad you made me watch that one because I had a real blast uh, watching <laughs> that. It um, but oh. it doesn't compare to uh, Robin Williams or Robert De Niro in Awakenings. So now so, we're going to think about Awakenings. Movie fight. Awakening. Moving fight. Movie fight. 
We are going awakenings versus or awakening versus awakening. So there's two oh. movies, one that you brought up to me that we both watched called The Awakening from 2011. And then I, when looking for that one, of course, stumbled across one that I'd heard of, but just never bothered to watch, which is a Charlton Heston famous because it's the only horror film he ever acted. And he turned down The Omen and then regretted it. So he ended up doing this, um, which is a ripoff of The Omen uh, called The Awakening. Uh, by the guy who did four weddings and a funeral or Egyptian funeral, uh, Mike Newell um, in 1980. So very different movies, but very similar titles. Very t- similar titles. So we decided to pit Awakening versus Awakening. So we will start with the 1981. This stars Charlton Heston as some type of crazy anthropologist. Archaeologist, um, probably. Archaeologists, yeah, because yeah, he's structures, he's studying their society. Yeah, but he's doing that. Well, it basically opens on him doing a dig. It's it's movie archaeologist, like okay. Indiana Jones version. He's not as adventurous, but he's younger. Charlton Heston, him and Susanna York, they're like young. While his wife's pregnant, he's kind of off in the Egypt. Like, he's doom. like a total asshole dick yeah. in this moment. Where that's probably why I gave it, you know, a half star higher than you because you were like, "Oh, I hate the way he's treated." I did. I hated him so much throughout the entire movie. Um, it was basically every single version of him because it spans time. I was like, "God, you just don't learn, do you, Charlton Heston?" Um, where at the start of the movie. He finds a pyramid um, that is previously undiscovered. His wife is super pregnant, has some type of like fevered spell back at the um, archaeology camp and goes into a coma. Like well, a from the moment coma. they enter the so they enter a tomb that's never been discovered. So it's a big yeah. deal and it's untouched. It's it's the best find in all of archaeology. The second they enter, she starts having oh, pain. Or you whatever it is, yeah, <laughs> movie, movie <laughs> after egg. Um, and the second they enter, she starts having pain. So they're they're the intercut is really where most of the horror is happening in the in a lot of this movie. And at some point, they find the tomb of uh, you know an Egyptian queen that uh, that's like untouched. And when they open it, at some point, he kind of accidentally touches the body. And that moment, the wife goes into like a you know premature labor as well. But yeah, and she's in this like Patrick like coma, and they take her to a hospital, and he leaves the hospital, literally saying, "Well, she's in a coma. There's not much I can do now." And he heads back to the dig site, and then she gives birth, and she responds as she should. I didn't like that she was kind of portrayed as the villain. Where when she wakes up with the kid, she's like. Um, yeah, you weren't here when I woke up. Fuck you. I'm going back to the States. And, um, and, she and she's does. also pissy a bit because he's hanging out with his, uh, the girl he does all this, uh, archaeology with, uh, and she's kind of jealous of her. And in the end, it turns out she was right to be because 20 years later, they seem like they're together. But yeah, uh, like in his defense, she was in a coma. What's he got? He's just spinning his wheels. He didn't have an iPad. What's he? He's just hanging out. Um, but he wasn't an incredible find. Um, and, uh, it also, uh, very importantly later on, has a scene with the emperor from return of the jedi as a therapist and i was like oh my god it's ian mcdermott as a, trying to be the nice guy in this movie uh but um so, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a slow one so it's we, very the slow whole, yeah. the whole wife giving birth scene is just like the first 10 minutes and then it fast forwards like 18 years and his daughter's turning 18 and he gives her this gift from the tomb and then suddenly this like 
curse is enacted and the queen basically yeah from the moment she's probably going to be possessed by the queen and come back but it also has a and when you said he gives her a gift the real gift gift is incest that he's going to give her because there's there's a huge incest vibe to this movie uh up there with amityville too in terms but it's obviously part of the egyptian curse uh and it's it's one of those movies that has like all the elements in terms of like location and big stars and it's got you know like an omen story but like most of the horror is just like the intercutting and the tension building. And the last five minutes is really cool. There's some cool moments, but it, there isn't quite enough to propel it as like a major. Uh, I mean, there's a glued on Heston beard. If you're, that's your bio, like, you know, that glued on. It's very glued on. It not is. enough, um, not enough, um, quite enough mummy action, but it's a Bram Stoker book um, called the jewel of the seven stars, which I had to look up, uh, which I thought was interesting. So it's, you know, it's, it's, I think an interesting horror movie and not a bad one, but pretty slow, uh, so you tell us about your awakening. If you're Miss Fancy Pants, you think your awakening is better than my awakening? I do think this awakening. So okay. I had texted Elric with this one, which is how this whole thing first started. Was um, I had messaged him because I discovered that Awakening 2011 is on Amazon Prime, and I had seen this movie. This is a British film directed by Nick Murphy. I had seen this one when it first came out back in 2011, and I have vague memories of it but on this rewatch now where i was just like "Eh, it's on prime whatever um i'll watch it and i loved it like i was just like this is just a really good movie however wait wait wait. just let's take a pause the other awakening could still win at this stage but continue continue (laughs) unless you read into tone and vocal cords Continue. So the setup of this one, this is post-war, 1940s, a um, uh, kind of a British female who's very much considered to be kind of an outcast because she's like one of, she's Oxford educated. She wears pants. She's a um, hoax exposer, right? Like in the opening scene. She bursts the hoax, yeah, which is super yeah, fun. She, she goes to seances, um, you know, fortune tellings, things like that, and exposes them for hoaxes and figures out how they're done. And she is called to this boys' school. This boys' school, which is, um, I don't want to make it sound she-she because it's not. It's What's very a much man- like, manor, like blind yeah, manner and all this kind of It's very blind manner, but the kids that are there are like kids that have seen shit. Like their parents were killed in the war or they're um, put there because their parents don't know what to do with them. Like they're definitely boys who have seen some shit. And they are also seeing a ghost. And the ghost stories got so bad that one of the students was killed. The kids think it was killed by the ghost. He was killed by the ghost. And so because the student body is in such an uproar that this ghost is now killing them, she is brought in to debunk the ghost. The and she has a best-selling book that has made her seem fairly legit. And a couple, one of the women who work there is a huge fan of her book. And Dominic West, the actor, you know, he's one of the guys who runs the place. He also seems to think maybe it really is a ghost. He's got photographic evidence, and that that's for her just bait to try to disprove it. Uh, she's played by Rebecca Hall, who uh, uh, played you know Christine, the journalist who you know shot herself on live TV. That was a big movie um, a couple years ago. But she's going to be in a, a horror film this year by Friends of Ours. Uh, uh, Luke Petrowski and Ben Collins, their film Nighthouse, which is mm-hmm. I think is going to be a really I'm really excited. That's the new David Bruckner film. But um, so she's a really interesting actress, and I think th- this is a great role. You know, she really kind of gets gets a lot to play with with where this film goes. And this film has some great scare sequences. Just I mean, and she spends most of the film in complete disbelief of what is going on. 
And because of that, like there is an element of some of the stuff that's going on is completely fake. And it's really, so it's got like this detective angle to it. Um, but there are just some really impressive scare sequences in there, especially with the dollhouse, like the second time. Oh, with the dollhouse it's if you like, you know, in a, the innocence and all of the um, Flanagan the stuff. And if you yeah. like the orphanage and what's the one with the Nicole and the others, it, yeah, it's mixtures of all of those things. It feels a little more contemporary in how it's treated even though the setting is in the past, it feels modern in terms of the scares and it goes, there's some pretty major twists that I think really pay off and make it actually stay with you. It's a, it's actually really one of the better um, first watches I've seen lately too. So I I really like this one, even though either film could win. Either film could still win. uh, I wouldn't want to give it away. Um, Awakening versus Awakening. 2011. I, I'm sorry. I really got to go. This, this one wasn't even really uh, that close. I know this was not a close fight. This was not, you know, us actually considering it and going with like a left, uh, yeah. you know, a left field choice. Um, yeah. Uh, 1980 was cool. And I'm it's glad for, I it's for it. people. If you dig, you know, if you like Omen ripoffs and there's a lot of good ones out there and it's got Heston, it's got, like I said, it's a well shot, well made movie. It yeah, just well, isn't exciting. Yeah. We don't get a lot of mummies. Like the mummy yeah. out of all of the monsters, the mummy is the one that is most kind of underrepresented. Sadly, we don't get a lot of mummy in this movie either. I wish we did yeah. by the end of it. Like it, it has the build up to it, um, but not not the payoff. But yeah, no, I think you're onto something. I think this awakening, um, you know, I've heard people talk about it before. I've seen the cover for years. Um, even thought I had seen it when I looked at the cover again. Um, but I think this is one that people looking for that kind of uh, chilling ghost story um, with actually a good story at the heart of it yeah. and great performances. This is a winner. So that's the awakening. Yes. It is a very good one. And it is the winner of move, the first movie fight of oh 2021. God. Now we can never talk about Charlton Heston's glued on beard ever again. He, Charlton Heston might never even come up on this, on our show here. Cause it's, not. he didn't do it's any horror. Apparently. horror film and now that's it. Dead. I mean, he's done a lot of sci. Actually, I would go so far as to say Omega Man has a horror element with all those vampire I things. I would say definitely, yeah. actually, yeah. So, uh, he's a sci-fi guy, obviously. Um, so anyway. Uh, so we've got some exciting stuff coming up. As we mentioned, we're doing The Bird with the Crystal Plumage screaming on the 29th. You can find the reservation link on our socials. Um, we have deep cuts coming up this month where we will be doing that as our Patreon show, where we will be diving into some completely bonkers giallo films. And, and some non. We've got a couple non-giallo too. It'll be all over, but definitely we'll mention some more there. And I'm also going to hold us accountable. We had a, a live episode that we recorded from for Salem Horror Film Festival on Puberty Horror. I'm going to I'm going to say it now that we are going to release it as a bonus episode on here uh, this month. Uh, it might not be next week, but we'll, we'll make sure we drop that yeah, because it, it was a really fun uh, fun kind of episode right before the show launched. But we are going to. There was a lot of discussions on periods. I remember. Well, yeah, no. That's a big it's, part of it. It's what happened. It's the puberty show. So there you go. <laughs> you called me into that one last minute. So, you know, I was catching up. I did. Up. I was like, come talk about periods. <laughs> with I was like, me. Uh, but it was fun. We had a good, it was a good one. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, welcome to 2021. And we're glad you guys all stuck with it. And uh, yeah, fun stuff ahead. of the Dark Podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate publisher is Jessica Safa Vamir and our amazing sound engineer. Thank you so much, Ernie Hurtado. 